Good afternoon, and thank you for tuning in to the Evangel Life broadcast. So Dan and I are here again, and we're going to be discussing um, probably a couple topics, but one central topic, and I'm just going to get right in with the question that we are going to attempt to explore and perhaps even answer. Question, are the values underpinning modern equity and justice movements, such as the social gospel teaching, tied to the teachings of Jesus and bona fide Christianity, and perhaps misapplied, or are they fundamentally different? If so, how? So I guess for, for reference sake, it'll be helpful to frame a little bit of what uh, these topics, these, these terms mean. So the social gospel teaching, perhaps I don't have the, the best, most concise definition of it, but I would say it's the belief system that the loving, compassionate teachings of Jesus, as put forth in the Sermon on the Mount, are supposed to be realized through the apparatus of a compassionate state government, uh, you know, government of some sort. And I think this has gained a lot of traction. Uh, in some ways, it's hijacked the, um, the civil rights movement. I don't think that you could honestly say that someone like Martin Luther King espoused this. He didn't formulate it as such. But it's a millenarian view. It's a view of the kingdom of God that believes it is the duty of a compassionate, active uh, government to implement the social norms uh, dictated in, Christ in Christianity. And I think one of the, the big guys behind this, I don't know exactly how to say his name, but Rauschenbuch, um, I think he would be one of the big figures behind it. And it is said of him that his thinking provided the underpinnings of the social gospel movement. Religious belief must be put into practice to right society's wrongs, which we would believe we would agree with. God is acting and Christ is here now, he proclaimed. It was up to men and women like him to act on the message of Christ and help create the kingdom of God on earth. So how would we, dif how would we disagree? I can see two distinct areas, but just as a, as a primer to the discussion, how would we agree or disagree with the social gospel as put forth in that, in that depiction? It seems like the question is, well, how are we acting, right? Because I think, I think I would agree that we are, we are called to act. Amen. We're not called to stand by and look and do nothing while there's problems in the world or while our neighbor is in need or whatever, that we, we are called to act. It would, simply, it would seem like it, the distinction would be in what form. Mm. Where are we turning to for the answers to that? Is, yeah. is, this, is this to uh, the church or to the state, or is the church somehow supposed to um, take the reins of the state so that the, the state can be harnessed to do the church's mission on the earth, or mm. how are we looking at that? Yeah. yeah, what kind of power are we using even? You know, yeah. I, I think that with millenarian perspectives, you often get these different camps and I would submit that the truth is found in a combination of some of their worldviews. So you have the premillennialists, who are the largest crowd in evangelical circles, and they, they're going to believe that the kingdom of God is, is going to be a natural, political, violent reality, but it's going to come after we're all taken up in the rapture. Um, and I, I, don't, I don't find that at all according with Jesus 
who said, you know, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would take up swords and fight. Or Paul saying, uh, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. So I don't see how you can rationalize this return to a lesser power. They're not carnal, but they are mighty, Paul said. So he thought that the weapons of the New Testament in the power of the Spirit was a they far exceeded the weapons of King David and Solomon. They were powerful, mighty through God. So the other school of thought, post-millennialists, they say something really quite similar in that they say, well, no, the kingdom of God is for now, um, and we're supposed to take over the institutions of power and be that influence in worldly politics of, of the kingdom of God. And so they would see Constantinianism Constantinian Christianity as the fulfillment of the millennial prophecies. And while we agree that the kingdom of God is supposed to be a reality today, uh, at least on a certain level, we don't agree that we would disagree with both the premillennialists and the postmillennialists because they don't understand the kind of power that it's supposed to be real, it's supposed to be concrete, it's supposed to be visible today, but not through the weapons of the flesh. So our view of the millennium forces us toward the spirit and the activity of the spirit makes us dependent on that. Their view of the millennium forces them toward politics, either politics after the Lord returns or politics in the present. And I think that while theologically there's probably no overt linkage in their minds, I think that the, the social gospel teaching, which is on the far left is really quite similar to the post-millennial teaching, which is on the far right often, uh, and that in that they they don't see that there is a fundamental difference in two kinds of power, two kinds of authority. And really, even the right-wing Christian nationalism is the same type of confusion. Absolutely. So whether you're left or right, and I, it seems like this whole thing uh, kind of ties into the appeal of or the arguments, rather, and the appeal to many people of the whole left-wing political movement. Leaving Christianity aside, the appeal of the liberal side of of politics is typically that we're going to do something about the problems in the world, whether that's the problems with the climate or the environment, or whether that's the problems with um, mistreatment of of minority groups or whatever. We are going to do something about it. And you people on the right wing, you guys are all about defending freedom, but who's helping the underdog? And that's what we're here. We're going to, we're going to act. We're going to bring about change. So it seems like a, I guess to some folks, it seems like a perfect marriage to say, yeah. well, that's what Jesus was saying, yeah. that we've got, to, we've got to love our neighbor, right. you know? And so why, why would we not reach for the most powerful tools at our disposal to do that, which right. would obviously be the state? Right. And that's and, where we might differ. Yeah, that's where we run into a conflict. <laughs> and, and wouldn't we say that fundamentally Jesus is the first one in history to draw a hard distinction between two kinds of authority. You might even say two kinds of government, two kinds of of kingdom. One that is backed by force and one that is voluntary and backed by love only. And isn't that revealed in his famous statement when he was asked if he should pay taxes to Caesar? And he said, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God's. Don't we view that as the establishment of two distinct spheres that can coexist with each other 
and play different roles in society and history, completely different roles. And that all of this, wouldn't we say, is a confusion between those two realms. Mm -hmm. And it's not just we who say that. I mean, I, I think even secular historians would acknowledge that Jesus was the very first person in history to introduce this revolutionary concept of the separation between church and state mm -hmm. with, that, with that idea. Um, and so many believers today would, would uh, champion that mm -hmm. as a statement. We believe in the separation of church and state. Right. Um, but it gets kind of turned on its its head. Yeah. It, it means that somehow the state should stay out of the church's business, but the church still should try to get into the state's business. Right, right. And and so which way does that is that a two way street, a one way street? Yeah. Should we close the street? <laughs> you know, yeah. how do you view that? Yeah. I think that um, you look at the traditional conservatives. And conservatism, political conservative, conservatism in America was often very closely tied to very sincere religious belief. And it was because they saw voluntary societies like churches and synagogue as the proper domain for doing the good in culture. They saw them mm -hmm. as responsible for feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, they saw churches as responsible for establishing hospitals and even building all the first universities and schooling children or helping families to do so. And, and so they saw the state as fulfilling a negative role. They look at Romans 13, and Paul clearly gives a legitimate function to the state as God's servant. But historically, Christians saw the state as a necessary evil, as the as the act of man's power against transgressors. But they felt that they would invest their hopes and their excitement and their faith and their compassion in the voluntary society of church. And, and the irony, to go back to your earlier point, is that as, as we've progressed, the church has narrowed its purview in human society down. It has shrunk it so tiny that these conservative Christians are still championing a limited government, but not simultaneously anymore are they championing, championing a, an expansive Christianity that mm -hmm. would meet these needs. So you have the liberals saying, we're going to help these people, and you got the conservatives saying, we want a smaller government, but they're not saying so that we can have a bigger church, so that we can have a bigger expression of compassion in the world. It almost, the argument would be, and I'm afraid it's all too true, is that you guys just want your freedom to exercise your hedonism. Yeah. At least we're trying to help feed the hungry and, yeah. you know, do something about it. And I think that that, that appeals very powerfully to youth, to, to the uh, university students and people who are, are sensitive to the needs around them, to the hurt around them. And they've, they've been indoctrinated. There's no doubt about that. But... That's just a lot more exciting a cause. You tell someone, I want you to be part of something that lowers your taxes, and they may yawn. You tell someone, I want you to be part of something that will feed the hungry in this nation and make sure everyone's medical needs can be met and give everyone the same chance as everyone else, and they're going to get excited. Yeah. So, it, and, and clean the environment and, you know, yeah. yeah. 
And the church is largely silent because the church so shrunk salvation down to this mental intellectual ascent. They don't see the church. They don't see the kingdom of God as a culture. They see it as merely a mental mechanism for securing our eternal destiny. We're at very best an adjunct, or as your dad used to say, serving a chaplaincy function to kind of, you know, but it's this, it's a sideshow or something. Yeah. And where, where things are really happening is the culture, yeah. which is, you know, broad society. Yeah. And I think that, you know, broadly speaking, I don't think that young people are going to be stirred <clears throat> to abandon that compassionate cause until a, a more effective instrument for realizing it emerges. And that's got to be the body of Christ. But in short, it's, it's an example of our theology of, of salvation, our theology of soteriology having a direct impact and effect on our politics and how we even view government. Can I make a pivot here and just say, you know, if, if we look at the social gospel, we would say we've just covered the ground that says we, have a, we believe that bona fide Christianity and the teachings of Jesus are in conflict because they are using the instruments of Caesar to do the work of Christ, right? Mm -hmm. But there, there, are, there are other ways in which we have a big conflict. And, and I think that this takes us back to the Enlightenment philosophers like Hegel and um, Rousseau, uh, who really paved the way for modern education. And this modern state, this modern compassionate state, really begins with people like Rousseau, not a, not a beautiful figure in history. Hmm. Um, but it really starts with him, and, it, and then it advances through people like Karl Marx. I mean, there's a real continuity between the thinking and ideals of Hegel and the practical uh, applications of Karl Marx. And, and then there's certainly a connection between those and, and someone like John Dewey, who is called the most influential philosopher in America in that century. He's the father of compulsory education in America as we know it. And all of them, starting with Rousseau and Hegel, they saw man as intrinsically good and they put all of the blame on his environment. And I guess this is a little bit of an interesting discussion to have to talk about environment versus nature, because this is really the rub where philosophically there is a hard contradiction between every form of socialism and Christianity. Because Christianity starts with the prerequisite that man is flawed. And socialism builds on the prerequisite that man is good. I, I put down some, um, some modern voices and some older voices that, uh, that kind of just point to this about man's goodness. Uh, Rousseau's famous quote is, man is born free, but everywhere is in chains. It's powerful. But he, this is the notion that he's okay, but it's his environment, it's his externals that are the problem. And then you got people like Norman Vincent Peale. They are inherently good. The bad reactions aren't basic. Every human being is a child of God and has more good in him than evil. But circumstances and associates can step up 
the bad and reduce the good. I've got great faith in the essential fairness and decency, you may say, goodness of human beings. And, and then you have, um, you know, modern, even conservative pundits with whom we would find a lot of common ground saying things like, people are inherently good. This is Glenn Beck. He says, people are inherently good. Our souls are magnificent and capable of extraordinary performance. And the word inherently good and the word capable of, those are very different ideas, but mm-hmm. he combines them into one statement. Steve Jobs is famous for saying, as individuals, people are inherently good. That's a powerful distinction that he makes there. He's saying that the, the institutions are the problem. But he says, as individuals, people are inherently good. I have somewhat more pessimistic view of people in groups. He goes on. I had to put in this quote from Albert Einstein. Um, He says, two things are infinite, the universe and human stupidity. And I'm not sure about the universe. (laughs) So he's quite, he's quite sure about the other. Yeah, exactly. I had to put that in there. Uh, Edgar Allan Poe famously said, I have no faith in human perfectibility. I think that human exertion will have no appreciable effect on humanity. Man is now only more active, not more happy, nor more wise than he was 6,000 years ago. He was always an optimist, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that pretty much categorizes him. And then you get into some, some more dubious characters, like Marquis de Sade, who some would incline to dismiss as... Uh, an aberration of history. You know, he, he was an extremist. But I think historians agree that few people had the impact on the Enlightenment, and especially the French Revolution at that time, had the, has, had the impact on social norms, as, as Marquis de Sade. Um, and he was a philosopher in his own right, very influenced by Machiavelli and, and, uh, and, he began to normalize the the proud owning of human debauchery. Uh, his name, Marquis de Sade, Sade is where we get the word sadist or sadism. And he he celebrated sexual libertinism. And again, it's it would be hard to ignore that the philosophy of Marquis de Sade is really what starts the whole trend in modernity toward this notion that restraint is your enemy, constraint is your enemy, and that you are your best self when you are freed from all constraints, free to do whatever you want. I, I looked up this, um, this uh, article on him, and it said, Marquis de Sade's book, Bedroom Sade, proposed using uh, induced abortion for social reasons and population control. He, this was the first time in history that the subject had been discussed in public. So you can, you can trace abortion right to Marquis de Sade. Yeah, he was born in the 1740s and died in 1814, but his ideas are what set us on the course that we are currently living in. Saad's writing framed the subsequent medical and social acceptance of abortion in Western society, quote unquote. I read this uh, article by Jason uh, Farrago of BBC, and he said, what Saad stands for, though, is not liberty, 
but extremity. He is the prophet of a world exceeding its boundaries. And in a world now pushing political, economic, and ecological limits to the breaking point, his dark vision of humanity looks increasingly, chillingly credible. The, these, these philosophers, starting with Rousseau and Hegel and then Marx and, and, and such, and, and, and right in, in the midst of this, decide, they're putting forth the idea and they're, they're rationalizing the idea that the human condition, the corporate human problem is environmental. It is not it is not a nature problem, it is not a soul problem, it is not a heart problem, it's strictly an environmental problem. Seems like Decide, is that how you say his name? I've never known how to say his name. Marquis Decide. Okay. It seems like Decide kind of makes the, the jump from if people are inherently good, then whatever they do is inherently good. Yeah. And so <laughs> here we are, here's what we do. It's a little bit of a tautology. <laughs> yeah, yeah, if you will. And so it's like this, this debauched condition. Yeah. And, and this guy, I guess Farrago there is saying that he has a dark vision of humanity, but I don't think Desaad saw it that way. No. He didn't see it as dark. He thought it, he celebrated all that yeah. gory yeah. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And Karl Marx picked up the same notion. He's famous for saying, man is man's God. He said, the, Karl Marx says, the whole of what is called world history is nothing but the creation of man by human labor. He, therefore has the evident and irrefutable proof of his self-creation of his own origins. I mean, if man is his own origins, if man is his own creator, then man is God. And that's the leap, I think, but it's not really a leap. It's, it's the inexorable path. Once you start from the premise that man is good, it's his environment that is to blame, then you're going to end up with man is God. <laughs> because as man starts to try to improve his environment, he starts to become the savior of himself. Therefore, mm -hmm. he starts to become God for himself and for his peers. So it's a flattering role to play, mm -hmm. especially for governments and modern messiahs. So how would we, how would we uh, harmonize? How would we explain to people our view that culture and environment is very important? How would we explain that while at the same time drawing a sharp distinction between what we see as the historical ideas that shaped the world we live in today? Well, I think I would explain our emphasis on culture by saying it's a matter of priorities. So the fact that we don't look at, at culture or circumstance or environment as the root cause of man's problems doesn't mean that we're ignoring it or saying that it has no effect on uh, the outcome of one's decisions and, and so forth. Mm. Uh, but if you haven't identified the root cause of the problem in the first place, mm. then just trying to fix the environment isn't going to do any good. Mm -hmm. I can work uh, as hard as I want on creating an in a greenhouse environment mm. uh, to protect my little seeds, mm -hmm. but if I have the wrong seed, that's it. I'm not going to grow a tomato. I'm going to grow a weed. Right. And so it's not only the environment that's at question. We've got to know what is, is the root of this thing. Yeah. Um, is it really good? If it really is good, then the, all the environmental changes ought to fix it. Yeah. And I think we might argue that people have been trying to fix the environment in a thousand ways 
and it hasn't changed anything yet. No. And, and of course, they would argue from the other side, well, we obviously haven't tried hard enough. Right. And so we need bigger government. <laughs> we yeah. need more of more yeah. of the same so that we, because we've, we've, we've been so close, you know. Yeah. What would the communists always say? Give us another five years, you know, right. another five-year yeah. plan. It's about to work. Yeah. Um, but. And, and what seems to be emerging is pretty troubling. Yeah, when you, were, when you first started answering, I thought, you know, if you, if you have a pigweed in your garden and, and you want bananas, there's no amount of fertilization, no amount of tending, no amount of sunlight and water that will ever get a banana to grow on that pigweed. Because mm-hmm. as you said, it's a seed. It's a, it's a problem difference at the core. It's, a, you can't, it's not an environmental difference. And that doesn't equate then that therefore bananas once planted don't need an environment mm-hmm. it just says you've got to fix the core you've got problem to pull up the pigweed first and plant the banana amen and then let's worry about environment amen <laughs> so i jotted down some scriptures just um from uh from scripture that i believe show that if our contention is correct that all forms of socialism are based on the innate goodness of man. That is our contention here. And if that is the case, then socialism is implacably opposed to Christianity and Christianity to socialism in all of its forms because Christianity teaches us that the problem originates in man's nature. The problem is that man is a pigweed. He is not a banana tree. And, and, and it doesn't mean that he is as evil as he can be, and it doesn't mean he has no capacity for good, but he is corrupted from his status as he was made in the image of God. And here's just some quick scriptures. Um, obviously, one of the best ones is Mark 7, 21, where Jesus says, it is not what is outside of a man that defiles him, but what is within the man. And he says, for from within, out of a person comes all the evil. And he goes and lists them, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these come from inside and defile a person. So even the word defile that he uses, which we would certainly equate with external influence, he says, no, the defilement is coming from inside, Hmm. not from without. Paul in, in Ephesians 2.3 says, we were by nature children of, of wrath, like everyone. <laughs> and uh, Psalm says, I was born in sin, yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. Genesis says, every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. <laughs> and Matthew, uh, Jesus quotes the same thing as in Mark, Matthew 15.19, Jeremiah He says, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? And again, well, it's the same verse. Uh, So so I think the whole story, the whole way the Bible starts really annihilates the presupposition that the problem is fundamentally environmental because man and woman start in the garden and they have the perfect environment and they have the perfect teacher, the perfect parent, and the perfect mate. Mm-hmm. And they sin. <laughs> and they are sent out of this perfect environment because of the choices that occurred in their own heart. So it was from within that the defilement came. 
And there was no external influence to damage that. And so we believe that there is, there's no possibility of, of, free, of a free existence in this world until we deal with the core problem, which is the human willfulness and rebellion against God that we would say is resolved in repentance. So man is everywhere in chains, but the chains are his own doing. That's it. That's it. That's exactly it. I guess uh, if you look at, at Marx, a lot of people would say, well, you know, we don't, we reject Marxism. You know, that's not, but, but we really don't. You listen to the songs that are being produced right now. You listen to the thinking, even of people like Ayn Rand or um, John Denver, they were acquaintances, and uh, Alan Greenspan, and they put forward, they took this whole idea of self-improvement and, and said, you know, you, you can make yourself, you can create yourself, you can be whatever you want to be. And the argument, again, is that whatever is wrong with you is external to your heart. It's external to your true self. And you can liberate that true self by adopting changes. And I think that this is really fundamentally a counter gospel. It's not the social gospel. It's the human gospel. And it's the gospel behind a certain kind of capitalism and hedonism there. It's the gospel behind this whole idea that you can change your look and you can be anything you want to be that way, or you, you have no givens. There's nothing that is received from above. Every good and perfect gift does not come down. It comes up from your own heart, mm. and you are yourself, you're, 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 you're your own creator. And I think that Marx is the one who, who really made that into a philosophy, but People build on that all the time. Herbert Mercuse uh, pretty much said the same thing as Marx. He's considered the foremost uh, influencer of the 60s revolution. And, and he felt that it, man was going to discover that man was his own God through the power to create himself, to change himself, and to create himself. And he, like de Sade, in a, in a, in a, in, to a lesser extent, promoted a kind of libertinism. Libertinism is only good, it's only a virtue, which it is not, but it's only seen as a virtue if you believe man is essentially good. Then all you got to do is un unleash that goodness, unstop it, uncork that potential. It's, it's not this willingness to say, no, man has an endless capacity for good, but he's got a flawed nature. And until we've dealt with that, it's futile to focus on releasing his potential because the two are inseparably connected. Hmm. It's dangerous even. So how would we say environment matters? I mean, we've given the example of the banana tree, but is there, is there, how would we, from a Christian standpoint, we really believe environment matters. In what sense does a person's external setting matter to him? Seems like it's for the purpose of cultivating what's going on inside, yeah. for providing the right kind of environment. You know, uh, if you think of culture like you think of, of the weather, um, then there's going to be elements that are either going to be conducive to flourishing um, or that are going to be detrimental. Yeah. So that's, that's going to be, the, the, I guess, the general answer. Yeah. I mean, Jesus said it is the soil that causes the seed to grow, didn't he? And mm -hmm. Isaiah says something almost the same. 
and and his parable of the seeds you know shows that soil matters but it really is what you already said it's a difference it's confusing the seed with the culture you cannot change the seeds kind by changing its culture cannot turn it. There cannot be a, biolo uh, a, a, a biological evolutionary process here. We can have an improvement. We can have a strengthening. We can even have the, the, the possibility of survival. Their culture can be so essential that you cannot survive without it. And that's the call to come out of that culture and to come into the culture of Christ. But that doesn't mean that through culture, you can skip over regeneration and cultivate a, a, a pigweed into a banana, into a banana tree. Can I just make a point too? I, I think that maybe it could sound like we're imagining that, you know, uh, human nature is so completely corrupted and, and collapsed that there's absolutely no no potential in anybody. And right. just we haven't said that, but it may sound that way to some ears. And I, we're really not saying that. No. I don't think the Bible is teaching that there's no potential. Right. It says that we're made in the image of God. Right. Um, but but what happened to that? Right. What happened to that image? Right. Has it not been corrupted by sin, even according to these passages that you read, from the beginning? Right. There is something in our DNA. It does not mean the potential is not there, but the question becomes, how do we realize that? So yeah. what what we have that that potential for goodness initially is the capacity to respond yeah. to the grace of God, to the movement of God, to the Word of God yeah. uh, when He appears, yeah. when He walks by on the shore, when he, we're hearing His Word in whatever form. Yeah. We, God has given us, He's planted that thing in us that can respond to Him. Yeah. Um, but until that happens, yeah. it, as long as it's still a self-help right. program, yeah. uh, we're going to be just reproducing more of the same Pigweeds. Pigweeds. <laughs> I'm sorry, I couldn't get off of it. Another another point I, I want to make, and maybe I'm jumping ahead here, no. but I'm, I'm going to kind of go back to the beginning where we were talking about, um, you know, uh, the, the church looking to the state for the tools to change society. Because I think we were in agreement with the, uh, the notion that it is Christians' responsibility to act. It is Christians' responsibility to care for other people, to try to, to make the world a better place and all of yeah. that. But we said, but how? By right. what means? By right. what power? With what tools? Right. And if, if you have this confusion that we've been discussing here for a little bit now, if you have that mixed up, yeah. where you think that the problem is external, right. then the obvious tool is the state, which can externally impose right. change upon environment. Uh, you know, but if you right. recognize that the problem is internal, you, the state is the most impotent place to look. Yeah. Because what, what law or what government or what policeman with a 357 on his hip right. ever made somebody stop hating and start loving? Right. It just can't happen. You cannot coerce mm. the love of God or, or um, you cannot coerce uh, altruism right. in people. Those things have to be summoned by a different kind of power right. that the state is not only uh, incapable of, it runs at cross purposes uh, to try to eliciting that from somebody. Yeah. I, I've often used the, the the simple and silly example of saying that if somebody puts a gun to my head and says, "You need to say to me, I love you," or "I'm going to pull the trigger," right? Uh, I'm. It's quite possible that I would yield to that and say, "I love you," right? But it wouldn't be true. No, you can't. You just can't make it happen. Right. Um, it, so. 
it's the wrong tool. Yeah. So I'm, I'm just pointing out that I think the dis, this 100%. distinction is why everybody looks for the wrong tools. Yeah. They've, they've misidentified the cause of the problem, so we reach for the wrong tool. Yeah. So you're saying that coercion and personal transformation can never one mix. does not produce the other. One cannot produce the other. They are they are at odds with each other. Okay, there's just there would be two things that I would just in wrapping up here. If if you buy into the innate goodness of man, then you have to buy into the biggest instrument for man's uh, change, which is going to be the state, and and that's going to be the instrument of solving the environmental problems. By environment, we don't mean just the the air and the and the ecosystem of, yeah. of nature we mean the whole context of his life and and you're going to be you're going to buy into one of two seems like you're going to buy into one of two um approaches to life one you're going to be a victim who uh opts for institutional blaming where you you, because if, if, if the environment is the problem, then someone's to blame. And, and you're going to talk about how you were victimized by this group or that group or another. As an individual, you're good. As an individual, you have potential, but you've been victimized. And I think that's perhaps a more obvious approach uh, to see through maybe for some or, and not for others. But the other approach is I'm going to be my I'm going to be this self-made man that we were talking about. I am going to bring about the changes in my life that change my circumstance and therefore my problem. And through change I am going to achieve both believe that through change they're going to achieve redemption. It's not stated that plainly, but that's that's the underpinning assumption. And so the world sells change like nothing else. And they call it progress, right? And so it's really tapping into the human cry for salvation, mm -hmm. cry for redemption. And it says, change. You can change your look. You can change your style. You can change your vocation. You can change where you live. You can change the color of your eyes. And all of those who feel caught by their circumstance they buy into this and they're told you're not the problem and everything in us wants to believe that i'm not the problem it's my circumstance it's my upbringing and that is how we end up with the radical notions plaguing us today that's that's how we end up where people start thinking they can change their gender it's it's the natural outworking of this big lie that the problem in human society is not human sin, but it's something else. And so we are grasping after the changes, a dime a dozen. And, you know, people are profiteering on, on all these scared individuals who are trying to change their way out of their captivity. Mm -hmm. It just makes you want to weep for people. It makes you want to say, oh, God has something so much better. <sighs> This is a lie. This is merchandising your fears. This is profiteering on your insecurities. But there is a place where, where God can give you that change. And um, I think that's what Christians don't realize is 
they they buy in to they buy into so much of this self-creation dogma of this independence and I can be anything I want. And then they freak out when it goes to the nth degree and people start saying, I'm going to be a man instead of a woman or a woman instead of a man. Oh, stop. Where, how is this happening? Mm-hmm. Are you kidding? We've been on this conveyor belt for centuries. This is the natural outworking of Marxism and Marquis de Sade and Hegel and all of these false gospels that were so pleasant to our ears that told us we weren't to blame. It was our environment, either an environment that we could change and we're going to be the responsible capitalists and change ourselves. Well, that's one side, or we're going to be the victim and blame the institution. That's the other side, but it's the same gospel. It's the same lie. You're not the problem. It's what Jezebel told Ahab, you know, when he was angry that he couldn't, when, when his envy made him bitter toward Naboth. Oh, are you not the king? You know, she tried to, she went in there and gave his spirit the courage to go take by force what belonged to somebody else. Mm-hmm. And, you know, nobody's, there's no evidence that anybody who gets these changes actually finds what they're looking for. It's, it's the caterpillar pillar. It's the story of riches. It's the story of fame. It's the story of, of wisdom and the, of the world's wisdom. It's the story of sports. It's the story of human nature, that there's only one place where you're really going to find what your soul is, is, is looking for. You mentioned the caterpillar, and I was already thinking about the caterpillars. It was just the whole discussion has made me think of a message I shared earlier this year, but I did a little research on the caterpillar butterfly phenomenon, and I know that's a maybe an overused metaphor, but it's such a powerful one. And I, I read something that I had not realized before about that process, and that was that that caterpillars actually shed their skin multiple times before they become a butterfly. So, of course, the analogy here is that you've got this this fat, wormy creature crawling around on the ground, feeding himself, destroying life, uh, and and yet he wasn't made to be that thing. No, he was made to be the butterfly that is so completely different. You you couldn't you would you would never believe that one came from the other if you just didn't grow up knowing it was a fact and hadn't watched it happen. Right. They're just so different in purpose, in form, in function. <laughs> And he's down there feeding himself. They don't even have the capacity to reproduce. It's just all about self as long as they're eating. But, it, but it, the, the research I was reading was, was pointing out that they, they constantly will, uh, they feel this urge to change. Yeah. But what do they do with it? They shed their skin and grow a new, bigger skin. And they grow into a new, fatter more destructive eating machine than they were before. The and wrong kind of it. change. They'll do it over and over and over. And there's there's some kind of, um, I can't remember what they call it. It's something like the the ego hormone or something like that. That that has to be it has to be reduced to the point where they give up that cycle, yeah. where they're constantly just being a new and fatter me. Yeah. And and they decide. Something in, in my essence has got to change. I know I'm imputing a lot of um, uh, mental activity to a caterpillar sure. that's probably not there, but sure. you get it for analogy purposes yeah. until they finally, at some point, they realize this is not what I was made to be. Yeah. And then they go find that place where they hang upside down and they're wrapped in that cocoon, the grave clothes, you might call it, and they say that the, the inside of the caterpillar turns to soup, 
scientists have still no idea how this happens. Every last piece of them is dissolved, other than this one, there, there's, a, there's a few little tiny pieces in there that they call the imaginal disk. Imagine doesn't mean that you, it's imaginary, it, it's connected to image. Mm. Like this, it contains the DNA that has the whole prototype for what that caterpillar was created to be once it comes through this metamorphosis. Mm. And you think of the image of God mm. that's planted inside of people. Mm. But that caterpillar has got to be willing to let all the rest of it become soup. Mm. <laughs> and then let that little image that was planted in there by its creator inform the, the, uh, the growth and the transformation into this butterfly mm. that's bringing life to the world. Yeah. You know, bringing pollination and life to the flowers, but also has the capacity to reproduce yeah. after its own kind. Mm. So... I just think it's an, uh, a neat illustration of the idea that everybody's restless for change. Yeah. But what kind of change is it going to be? That's it. And, and whether it's you as an individual, whether it's us as a society, are we really going to do yeah. the revolutionary thing again that's been done over and over by Marx and the French Revolution and, I mean, just on and on and on and on and on? Yeah. And think we've got, well, guess what we're going to have? We're going to have a new, bigger, fatter more destructive, more ugly version of the same thing we've always done? <laughs> or can we, can we reimagine the whole thing, which really doesn't mean imagine. It really means yeah. submit to the plan of the Creator from the beginning yeah. and let all that go to soup yeah. and let God, let God unveil and unearth what, what He made us to be in the first place. Because yeah. we were made in His image. It was our own doing and our own sin that got in the way, yeah. um, and it's His desire to reawaken that dormant seed inside of us that could change from the inside out. And then the rest of it's going to take care of itself. Seek first the kingdom. It's, it's going to unfold yes. the rest of this environmental change that we long for. Amen. So God help us to make butterfly changes, not caterpillar changes. I was thinking we misidentify the bondage. And, and so we seek and find the wrong liberation. But the bondage that, that we've got to get free from is the bondage of human sin, the bondage of the tyranny of our own will. And in escaping that, we can find that new beginning. The bondage is being a caterpillar, and the freedom is becoming a butterfly. It's so flattering to imagine that everybody else is the problem and I'm inherently good, <laughs> you know, or my environment or whatever. It's yeah. so... It so fits in with our natural tendencies towards self-promotion and self-preservation and the whole thing. So it's counterintuitive yeah. to get inside of that cocoon. feels like you're dying, yeah. but you're actually being prepared for your real purpose. Amen. I put down these quotes from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. We can wrap it up with this. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer was, um, was a, uh, a minister in Germany, part of the confessing church that opposed Nazism during the Holocaust. And he was ultimately killed by the Third Reich. Um, but he suffered in prison beforehand, and he, he penned quite a few short books and, and teachings on, on what it meant to be a Christian amidst adversity. And uh, he says, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, when all is said and done, the life of faith is nothing if not an unending struggle of the spirit with every available weapon 
against the flesh. That's it. That's the real battle. Hmm. And if we can start to find grace and the, and the power of God in that essential battle, then a society becomes possible where all the ideals of compassion that Jesus brought can be realized. But you cannot have the unity in the church until you have dealt with the real problem. Mm-hmm. And apart from that unity, you can't have the impact that it seems he's promising in the Sermon on the Mount or in the Great Commission. I also liked this quote from Bonhoeffer. He said, if you board the wrong train, it is no use running along the corridor in the, wrong, in the opposite direction. We've got to get off the conveyor belt of a big lie that is leading droves of humanity to a meaningless and disappointed conclusion where they get what they wanted and they're unhappy or they don't get what they wanted and they're unhappy. We need to find that the gospel identifies the problem right here, but it doesn't just point us, point the point a finger at us and say, that's the problem. It gives us the power and the grace to overcome it. And that leads us into a relationship with God and, and with his body. So to sum up, I think that we would say the gospel of Jesus and the hope of the church in this age are implacably antagonistic to the basic tenets of socialism because socialism points to man's external setting and environment, but the gospel points to man's soul and resolves the real problem. And then it's additionally implacable with socialism because socialism chooses, picks the wrong vehicle for realizing the change. Mm -hmm. They're trying to bring about compassion through the arm of coercion, which is transparently crazy. And, uh, but repentance becomes the starting point, the antecedent for all of the unity, cooperation, and compassion promised by Jesus and, and sought by decent people everywhere. And that's, and so then does it, does environment prove necessary, even essential? Most certainly, but it's a difference between trying to turn a pigweed into a banana tree versus finally getting the banana tree, the butterfly, to change metaphors, and then saying, what environment gives this banana tree or butterfly the best chance of survival? Mm-hmm. Amen. Amen. Well, that's a wrap, I guess. Well, thank you for tuning in. And uh, if you have questions, please send them. You're welcome to post them in the comment section, and we'll do our best to, to address those. God bless you. You'll see us next week.